1: Who are you? Are you funny? Are you intelligent? Are you patient? Are you anxious? The things that make you, you, your personality, where do those things exist? Where do they come from? What is you? Is it your soul, your spirit, or your brain? What if you got whacked on the head and all those things that made you, you were suddenly different? Might some latent or unexpressed qualities emerge and make your personality shift in permanent and unexpected ways? Or could you be shocked into becoming someone else altogether, someone virtually unrecognizable who utterly eclipses the you you were before? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who sometimes wishes they could just get a good blow to the head that would knock out all the anxiety. Back in season one, I told you about a small handful of people who experienced miraculous changes as the result of a traumatic brain injury. They were suddenly able to recall intricate details from years earlier, or discovered artistic talents they never knew they had. Today, we're going to learn about three people who experienced blows to the brains that didn't leave them with remarkable talents, but rather erased their previous selves completely. Come along. We're headed to the dark side of personality change. Navel-gazing. It's not just a pastime for intensely self-focused young people in the Kardashians. We humans have been gazing at our navels, both individual and collective, since the dawn of humanity. We are fascinated with the question of who we are— Anyone who has kids knows that people are generally born with the temperament they'll have for the rest of their lives. My son was born objectively awesome, but also with a pretty sunny, friendly disposition. Ever since he was a baby, he showed a real excitement for life. Where did he get that? Certainly not from me, or his dad, for that matter. And if the human brain starts out a relatively blank slate, where do aspects of the personality that we're born with live. Cultures around the world, independent of each other since ancient times, answered the question of where the personality lives with the concept of a soul. As far as I know, pretty much every culture believes in the concept of a soul. It's a comforting idea, given the corporeal nature of these meat suits we walk around in. Whether or not you believe in a god or some kind of life after this one, the idea that we get to continue on after our bag of bones has rotted away— makes the trip from life to death slightly less pointless. That and sex and cheese and naps. But as of yet, we still don't know what or where the soul is, or even if it exists at all. We haven't figured out a way to scientifically quantify the human soul. We have certainly tried, of course, Descartes believed the soul lived in the brain's pineal gland, while ancient anatomists thought the heart or even the lungs were the seat of the soul. But with time and a deeper understanding of the function of the human body, as well as a greater awareness of how complex human beings are, we eventually understood the soul does not sit inside the human body like a piece of fruit in a bowl. The concept of the mind evolved from our need to reference the distinction between the function of the brain and the thing that elevates us and makes us unique. Still, the brain is a far more tangible thing that can be picked apart for science, both literally and figuratively. We, or at least I, tend to think of the brain as responsible for our motor functions, right? Like a computer, a control center that directs us to turn left or use our thumb and forefinger to pick something up or to eat when we're hungry or go to bed when we're tired. It turns out a lot of our weird quirks can be accounted for in the brain. From handwriting—that part of my brain is definitely defective—to what position we like to sleep in, to whether or not we like cilantro, to much bigger things like whether or not we're friendly or adventurous. A 2017 piece for The Conversation outlined a study of 500 healthy adults that were divided into the so-called Big Five personality traits. Neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. What they found was that the actual structure of the subject's brains in each personality category were consistent. The author of the piece explained, quote, we found that neuroticism, a personality trait underlying mental illnesses such as anxiety disorder, was linked to a thicker cortex, the brain's outer layer of neural tissue, and a smaller area folding in some brain regions. Conversely, openness, a trait reflecting curiosity and creativity, was associated to thinner cortex and greater area folding in the brain. The other personality traits were linked to other differences in brain structure, such as agreeableness, which was correlated with a thinner prefrontal cortex. This area is involved in tasks including processing empathy and other social skills. End quote. In other words, with this information, a coroner could identify whether their formerly alive subject had been friendly or curious or anxious just by looking at the structures of their brain. A 1987 New York Times article reported, quote, "...new studies have shown that three basic aspects of personality change little throughout life— a person's anxiety level, friendliness, and eagerness for novel experiences." But other traits, such as alienation, morale, and feelings of satisfaction, can vary greatly as a person goes through life. These more changeable traits largely reflect such things as how a person sees himself and his life at a given point, rather than a basic underlying temperament, end quote. So when you meet someone who's just kind of a dick, remember, it's not really their fault. Baby, they were born that way. Speaking of babies, this explains those babies you pass in their stroller at the grocery store who you smile and wave to and they just kind of raise an eyebrow and frown at you and you're like, you're six months old and already over it? Good luck, kid. Turns out their shitty attitude may just be genetic luck of the draw. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that every baby that doesn't smile back is shitty, but it is actually sort of instinctual to a point. So when it doesn't happen, it's okay if you wonder if they might have the mark of the beast under their hair. If the personality does in fact live in the brain, that would mean that injury to the brain could potentially change our core personality, right? It makes sense if you look at lobotomized people. Jesus, remember when we used to lobotomize people because we didn't like them, or because they didn't like themselves? Egads! There have been plenty of studies done on people with traumatic brain injury that have shown pretty major changes in the subject's personality. The changes are usually in the form of a reduced filter. As brain doctor Brent Mazel explained it for a piece for NBC News, quote, One of the problems for people with injuries to the frontal lobes is that they frequently do or say things before they've thought them out. It's sort of like someone who's had three, four beers. An injury there can cause you to lose that filter, end quote. But for some people, the change in personality resulting from a traumatic brain injury goes far beyond just a missing social filter.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.
1: On September 13, 1848, 25-year-old construction foreman Phineas Gage and his crew were blasting rock for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad Company near Cavendish, Vermont. According to a presentation by John M. Harlow, M.D., given to the Massachusetts Medical Society about 20 years later, titled, and this is a big spoiler alert, kids, Recovery from the Passage of an Iron Bar Through the Head. So, yeah, that's where we're headed. Just, you know, if discussions of iron bars through the head make you squeamish. Gage was...
2: A perfectly healthy, strong and active young man, 25 years of age, Nervaubileus temperament, five feet, six inches in height, average weight, 150 pounds, possessing an iron will as well as an
1: iron frame. Okay, Dr. Harlow, I see your artistic license. Anyway... Gage and his crew were preparing the ground for the eventual laying of railroad tracks, which involved digging holes, filling them with gunpowder, covering the gunpowder with sand or clay, and then exploding the gunpowder underneath to create a void on which to build. According to a piece about Gage and Slate in 2014, the tool Gage used to tamp down the gunpowder and sand was unique to him. It weighed a little over 13 pounds and was about three and a half feet long and was shaped like a javelin. Apparently, Gage got distracted momentarily by his crew and either scraped his iron against the side of the hole when he went to tamp down the top layer, causing a spark, or he didn't realize the top layer hadn't yet been added and consequently he tamped down the gunpowder, causing a spark. Either way, the spark ignited the gunpowder, sending his three-and-a-half-foot iron spear shooting upward. Strangers, if you're eating ribs or... I don't know, anything, please stop and wait for your stomach to settle before listening to this next part. You have been warned. The Slate article explained, quote, The iron entered Gage's head point first, striking below the left cheekbone. It destroyed the upper molar, passed behind his left eye, and tore into the underbelly of his brain's left frontal lobe. It then plowed through the top of his skull, exiting near the midline, just behind where his hairline started. After parabbling upward, one report claimed it whistled as it flew. The rod landed 25 yards away and stuck upright in the dirt, mumblety peg style. Witnesses described it as streaked with red and greasy to the touch from fatty brain tissue, end quote. Now, if you're thinking there's no way this dude could have survived this insane accident, you're not remembering the name of the presentation given by Dr. Harlow entitled Recovering from the Passage of an Iron Bar Through the Head. Gage miraculously survived, Not only that, but he was up and walking mere moments after it happened. The slate piece continued, quote, He merely twitched a few times on the ground and was talking and walking again within minutes. He felt steady enough to climb into an ox cart, and after someone grabbed the reins and giddy-upped, he sat upright for the entire mile-long trip into Cavendish. At the hotel where he was lodging, he settled into a chair on the porch and chatted with passersby. The first doctor to arrive could see, even from his carriage, a volcano of upturned bone jutting out of Gage's scalp, end quote. According to a 2020 piece for SimplyPsychology.com, Gage waited in the hotel lobby, which really makes you wonder what the hell the staff was doing at this point. Like... The dude's face and head are caved in. You could literally see his brain pulsing through the hole in his skull, and I would imagine there was, you know, blood? But apparently, according to Dr. Harlow's report, Gage just sat there in the lobby till the doctor arrived and greeted him by saying, here's business enough for you, at which point he vomited, causing, quote, about a teacup full of his brain to fall upon the floor. From the hole at the top of his skull. End quote. Good luck eating tapioca pudding ever again, am I right? (laughs) Remarkably, by October 11th, less than a month after being impaled by a high-speed iron spear, Gage seemed to have basically regained all of his intellectual functioning and was, by all accounts, pretty much Okay. Considering that people still regularly died from minor cuts back in the 1800s, it's incredible that this guy had his entire brain spilling out of his head and was just like, doo-doo-doo, pretty much right away. That might be enough for a Strange and Unexplained episode, but Phineas Gage's story didn't end there. In April of that following year, Gage visited Dr. Harlow for a follow-up, and Dr. Harlow reported that physically, Gage was making remarkable progress. Even aesthetically, considering the extent of the injury, Gage didn't look like a guy who'd had a giant metal spike driven through his face and out the top of his skull. I mean, there was some damage, but not as much as this layperson would have imagined. What Dr. Harlow discovered, however, was that it seemed there had been damage done to Gage's personality. Dr. Harlow reported,
2: The equilibrium or balance, so to speak, between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seems to have been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times pertinaciously obstinate yet capricious and vacillating, devising many plans of future operation which are no sooner arranged and they are abandoned in turn for others, appearing more feasible. A child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man. Previous to his injury, though untrained in the schools, he possessed a well-balanced mind, and was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman, Very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. In this regard, his mind was radically changed, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage.
1: Now that Gage was, by this account, a cranky, impulsive flake, he had trouble getting and keeping work. Apparently, he spent the next few years peddling himself as an oddity in sideshows and circuses, appearing for a while in P.T. Barnum's museum in New York, where visitors could part his hair and feel his brain pulsating underneath the scar in his scalp. Sounds like a fun family activity to me. It seems most of the changes in Gage's personality came posthumously in the form of rumor and sensationalism. Dr. Harlow's account was the only actual written account of the changes in Gage's personality after the accident. But that, of course, didn't stop people from adding their own flair. By the time psychologist and historian Malcolm McMillan came along to research the case in the 1970s, Gage's personality had morphed into, quote, an unstable, impatient, foul-mouthed, work-shy, drunken wastrel who drifted around circuses and fairgrounds, unable to look after himself and dying penniless, end quote. Gage was described by some as, quote, sexually apathetic, others as promiscuous, some as hot tempered, others as emotionally void, as if lobotomized, end quote. There was also a truly bizarre rumor that Gage lived out the rest of his life with the rod still impaled through his face and skull. In his book, Descartes' Error, neuroscientist and author Antonio Damasio repeated popular rumors about Gage, including, according to Slate, quote, that women couldn't stand to be in Gage's presence, that he started drinking and brawling in questionable places, that he was a braggart and a liar and a sociopath, end quote. Damasio even went so far as to theorize that Gage's soul was either diminished or lost because of the accident. I'm no neuroscientist, but in the end, I'm suspicious that this was solely a personality change caused by TBI, rather than a personality change and a depressive response caused by, well, TBI. I would imagine surviving something like that might make a lot of things about day-to-day life, including keeping a menial job, seem trivial and pointless. In 1860, the very year that Phineas Gage died, another man would suffer a massive blow to the head that seemed to alter his core personality too. Originally from London, Edward Maybridge moved to San Francisco in 1852 and opened a bookstore. In early August of 1860, after missing a boat back to Europe for a business trip, Maybridge bought a ticket for a stagecoach to St. Louis instead. Because Missouri was the obvious next best thing to Europe, I guess. No offense to Missourians. According to an article in the Sacramento Daily Union, on August 6th, the horses took off from Mountain Station in northeast Texas at top speed, came to a curve in the road on said mountain, and when the brakes failed, the coach careened down the mountain, hitting a tree, splintering into pieces, tossing all the passengers into the side of the mountain. Incidentally, did you know horses had brakes that could fail? I didn't. One man was killed, while Maybridge sustained a blow to the head that knocked him out and caused him to lose his sense of taste and smell for a while. He said his first memory after the crash was waking up 150 miles away in Arkansas with a doctor standing over him who told him he'd never fully recover. Cool bedside manner, dude. Maybridge made it to Europe, after all, traveling to London to seek the medical care of famed neurologist and personal physician to Queen Victoria, Sir William Withy Gull. Despite spending five or six years in London in Gull's hospital, there's not a ton of info about his recovery process. Also, five to six years sounds like an awful lot of years to be in the hospital, especially when you remember that Gage was out and about in less than a month after being skewered by an iron javelin. One thing we do know is that Dr. Sir Doctor? Dr. Sir? Gull suggested Maybridge take up photography as part of his rehab, Don't ask me, folks. I just report the facts. Random though the suggestion seemed, it turned out Maybridge had an especially keen eye for photography, particularly for capturing movement, which was thought to be connected to his experience during the accident in which, though he didn't actually remember the events immediately before or during, he reported experiencing a sense that time had stopped during the event itself. This newly discovered artistic talent for photography is similar, of course, to the people I introduced you to in the Miraculous Talents episode. Maybridge's new ability afforded him a brand new career. He even invented an early moving picture projector called the Zupraxiscope, in which a series of still photos mounted on a rotating disc appeared to be moving in a smooth motion, which, of course, all movies are. But this isn't another episode about incredible talents uncovered by traumatic brain injury. And so, as you probably guessed, like Phineas Gage before him, Maybridge's personality seemed to take a decidedly dark turn after his accident. Or at least that's what his lawyers would have everyone believe. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. In 1871, Maybridge married a woman named Flora Shalcross Stone, and the two had a baby a few years later. Somehow, Maybridge came across a letter Flora had written to theater critic Major Harry Larkins, in which Flora referred to the baby as Little Harry. Maybridge decided that meant the baby he thought was his was actually the product of an affair his wife was having with Larkins, and he flew into a rage. Maybridge caught up with Larkins at his home that evening, knocked on the door, and when Larkins answered, Maybridge said, I have brought a message from my wife. Take it. And he shot Larkins to death. Maybridge pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, and his friends and associates were brought to the stand to testify that something in Maybridge's personality had changed since the accident. According to a 2016 article in The Atlantic, William H. Rolifson, a colleague of Maybridge’s, testified that, quote, "Maybridge sometimes slipped into bursts of grief or anger and just as easily into a placid daze. Immovable as stone end quote." Rolifson and others insisted that Maybridge had become impulsive, irritable, sloppy, eccentric, and careless in his business dealings. One colleague testified that Maybridge came back from his recovery in England an entirely different man. It seems to me that all of this is irrelevant. Unless they were trying to argue that Maybridge had suffered actual brain damage that somehow caused him to kill his wife's suspected lover, I'm not sure how bringing a parade of men to be like, this dude used to be cool, but now he sucks, was going to help him win the case. Maybe Maybridge's attorney saw the weakness in their case too, because in his closing statement, he made this turd of a statement. Every fibre of a man's frame impels him to instant vengeance, and he will have it, if hell yawned before him the instant afterward. And the old white men who made up the jury were like huzzah, yes, what a great defense, and they let Maybridge go. Side note, if you listen to our recent Pride series on the tragic love affair between Frieda Ward and Alice Mitchell in 19th century Tennessee, you'll sense a difference between how this all turned out for the insane Mr. Maybridge as opposed to the insane Ms. Mitchell. He got to go free, and she got to go to an asylum to wait out her death. I haven't said this in a while, but something to put in your pipe and smoke. Anyway... Maybridge divorced his wife, who died a few months later, and then Maybridge put their child in an orphanage and moved on with his life as though nothing had ever happened. Atlantic reporter Jay weston Fippen points out that it's impossible to know if Maybridge's lawyer cooked up this changed man narrative to get his client off, and as far as I'm concerned, it would be a moot point anyway. Even if Maybridge's personality had changed because of his accident, it wouldn't have justified the murder. I'm inclined to believe that, if anything, Maybridge, like Gage, got whacked on the head, could have easily died, and his perspective on life changed. Maybe he was more impulsive, sloppy, and careless because he was like, life is short, who cares? Okay. So, so far, I've told you about two guys who suffered massive blows to the head who certainly seemed different afterward, but maybe not like, this guy is a whole new guy. This next guy, though, got a real bump on the head and became a whole lot of whole new guys. In 1998, a 54-year-old OBGYN in Poland who was referred to in case studies as Patient Pa, but whom I will call Bob, of course, got into a car accident on the way to a party with his wife. Apparently, his wife found out that he'd intended to go to the party with another woman with whom he'd been having an affair, and she was understandably like, nope. Remarkably, rather than walking out on him altogether, Bob's wife insisted that he take her to the party instead, because that sounds like a swell night out. On the way, in order to avoid a head-on collision with another car, Bob swerved off the road, being sure to take the brunt of the ensuing crash with a tree, leaving his wife mostly unharmed. As a result, Bob was in a coma for 63 days, and when he woke up, he had amnesia. The amnesia subsided, but by February of the following year, things had gotten weird. Bob thought the hospital was a garage and that he was a mechanic. Weirdly, despite the fact that his amnesia had officially gone away, Bob reported not knowing who he was. Not only that, but he exhibited signs of loss of personal history, social history, and lifestyle. Clearly, I'm no medical doctor because I would think these are classic symptoms of amnesia. I guess people go to school for many years for doctoring, so they probably know better than me. Bob also experienced abrupt changes in habit, apparently giving up drinking and smoking without any fanfare. Much stranger, though, was that Bob could no longer recognize his wife, children, former lover, dog, or even himself. A therapist named Jacek reported this exchange with Bob in front of a mirror.
0: Who is that, Peter? Who do you see there? I don't know.
1: Oh, my God. That monster is staring at me! Ten minutes later, he'd forgotten the entire incident. Another time, his former girlfriend came to visit him in the hospital.
0: How are you feeling, darling?
1: Don't kiss me! I don't know you! Shortly after, his therapist asked him about the visit.
0: So, you have been visited by your girlfriend? That hag is supposed to be my lover? She's a beautiful woman, isn't she? Uh, perhaps I could consider that woman beautiful, yes. I, I would regard her as beautiful. She's about 40, isn't she? And no girlfriend of mine could be so old. Besides, I've never had a lover.
1: And this is, without a doubt, pretty garbagey, but it does seem that Bob had forgotten that he himself was older than 40. His perception of his age changed depending on the moment. At one point, when his therapist reminded him that he was a gynecologist, Bob was like, "'Nah, bro. I'm only about seven or eight years old.'" Weirdly, Bob then reminded his therapist that it was verboten for doctors to be romantically involved with their patients, suggesting that he did recognize his former girlfriend as a former patient, which she had been, just not as his former girlfriend. When his dog was brought in to visit him, his therapist was like, hey, here's your dog, and Bob said, A lump of fur like that? I don't own a
0: dog. I wouldn't want such a rubbishy thing. I'm afraid of this dog. It, It wants to bite me.
1: Bob was not only suspicious of his family and his poor little wiener dog, but he also developed a serious suspicion of the government, once saying,
0: The government has not only changed the money, and I can't recognize it, but also the calendar to avoid paying the life annuity. They added 30 years to the established calendar, and as a result, I'm supposed to be 45 years old. But really, I'm 25. They want to get rid of me. I'm scared.
1: Eventually, Bob became so detached from his own identity that he began borrowing the identity of whoever he happened to be interacting with. After chatting with a patient named Jurek who had had a knee operation, Bob suddenly decided that he too had had a knee operation and couldn't walk and needed a wheelchair. Also, Bob's name, he now insisted, was Jurek. He took art supplies away from a 29-year-old art therapist named Spezek and wouldn't give them back and shouted about how he needed his supplies in order to make a living. Also, his name was now Spezek, and he was 29 years old. He grabbed the scissors from a hairdresser who was cutting his hair and refused to give them back because he was now a hairdresser and she was trying to prevent him from earning a living. This kind of thing happened over and over, and always, by two hours after the incident, he had forgotten it had ever happened and would go back to feeling completely unmoored and like he had no identity. Bob never really recovered. I don't know if he's still alive, but as of 2011, he was still borrowing other people's identities. He still believed he had no family and that they'd all died in a car accident. And at one point, he believed he himself was dead. He once described his core identity as a ladybug wandering around in search of something. He didn't know what. Maybe what Bob's story shows us is that for all the discussion about the soul, who we are is really based on something much more concrete and quantifiable. It is our memory and experience that make us who we are. Maybe the changes these three men showed in their personalities weren't new at all. Maybe deep down, underneath the filters of polite society, there were always crabby, cantankerous, wishy-washy dudes who were, to various degrees, pretty unpleasant. Maybe the head trauma just took away the filters that kept all that suppressed before. But then again, is it possible that the split second it took for these men to receive these horrific injuries, that their bodies internalized that trauma and who they became afterward was the reactive response of the brain trying to cope with something impossible to cope with? Or beyond that, could it be that when the machinery of the brain was damaged, it could no longer adequately be the channel for the soul it had always functioned as and became at best a sort of busted transmitter only broadcasting part of the message? These are all questions that are impossible to answer. But doesn't the asking of them alone imply we might be more than meets the eye? After all, if we've learned nothing else on Strange and Unexplained, we certainly have seen that anything is possible. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, we'll take a trip to the happiest place on Earth to discover what darkness lurks just beneath the shiny facade at Disney's theme parks. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, Lauren Hooper, and Raymond J. Lee. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation.